3: this is the starship sova everybody welcome hello and welcome to oral delights show number 87 i am your host tony c smith So I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a show today. Wow, this is science fiction at the top crust of the genre. Give you a little heads up what's happening in today's show. New titles, straight off with new titles where I'll delve in and tell you what's happening with the new titles. Flash fiction comes from Rick Norwood. Great little story, first appeared in Analog. Then we have Mr Matthew Sanborn Smith. Delivers another fiction crawler extraordinaire. Matthew, this is fantastic. We have main fiction after that, which is Adam Troy Castro, and this is just an amazing story. It was first in Analog, and it was up for a Nebula Award as well, and is narrated by Mike Boris, and Mike is going to make a splash with Starship Silver listeners. This is just perfect for that story. Then we have Amy H. Sturgis, which is looking back at her genre fiction, and it's all of those pieces that go to make this is, like, I'm going to say, it, one of the top shows I've done. I'm so proud of this show. So do stick around. And as usual now in the editorial, I want to talk about these sofa notes. And actually last week when I kind of played back the show once it actually gone live, I played it back and I noticed there wasn't the editorial. And I recorded one but for some reason was the editorial is missing so god knows where that went now but this editorial all about sofa notes i'd like to say it's just my excuse to kind of bring a little bit more in stuff related to the sofa notes what we got up to on last week's show and i give you now as well today a little kind of hint at what's going to happen on the sofa notes so last week we had jeremy talbot as usual we had Charles A. Tan, who is one of the probably the leading exponents of science fiction over there in the Philippines. You know, he's pushing out science fiction, he's trying to get a name for itself over there, you know, like to bring it to a wider audience. And he's like, he's on Twitter, he's, he's on all so many blogs kicking around on the kind of porosphere on the science fiction front. He's doing a remarkable job, you know, to kind of bring science fiction over to kind of, not just over to the Philippines, but, you know, to kind of bring it back into kind of our lives as well, you know, and the, the other guest was John Joseph Adams, who's kind of one of the best work in the day Anthologizers out there you know he's bringing some great works in kind of these anthologies he's bringing out wasteland seeds of change this new one he's got out federations and it was through Charles A. Tan actually sent John Joseph Adams like a collection of Philippines I think they were like vampire horror stories and he's going to choose one of them for a future publication as well so some great like I said two great guests on last week's show and Jeremy Talbot as well we got into some great like kind of discussions you know and we just asked You know, I had to ask a couple of questions on fantasy and science fiction because John Joseph Adams over there is kind of an editor over there as well. So, But what's also good, and hopefully it's going to come off this week, which is guests is going to be Matthew Sanborn-Smith, who's on this week's show as well for the Fiction Crawler. We're going to have Matthew on. We're going to have Damien G. Walter back on again. Damien, and actually, it's going to be, when I think about it, it's going to be the first time the same lineup is on that was the very first sofa notes matthew sanborn smith damon D G walder and jeremy talbot but what's good fingers crossed it works if you go over to starship sofa site there now either the starship sofa one or the sofa notes one. i mean they're all kind of linked in between you know, they're all kind of one big not one big mess i'd get wrong off gareth for saying that but they're just kind of one big, kind of, you know, they're all linked together. But if you look now on the top of any of them sites, you'll see a little tab that says live. Yes, that's it. We hopefully are working it out. I've been working it out with our good friend from the forum is Dylan. And Dylan's been helping us out kind of trying to work out this thing of getting it on like a live kind of Ustream stick arm thing. So you can actually see us, if you want to do, you know, like interact and do the like, SofaNord show live. You can actually watch it on your computer so do look out for that first one like i say is up this week and you know if hopefully we'll get it sorted out so you can go you can either go if you want to on new stick am and watch with there or you can just come over to the, the main starship sofa site or the sofa node site click on the tab and that'll bring up the kind of sofa notes player and you'll be able to watch us interact there and do the show so there you go that is some news now off the top of my head which i'm shocking about this i can never remember the time zones I'm recording this, or so we're going to record the next Sofa Notes one on Friday, and it's going to be 16.30 UK time. Now, if you pop over to the site, it'll give you that. I'll try and write down the dates, the time, should I say, which you'll, you know, get everything so you can understand it more, you know what I mean, so you're not just, like, trying to listen to this and thinking, did he say that? What was that? When was that? The 21st? <laughs> but it's going to be this Friday coming on the 16.30 but that's uk time whether what that kind of correlates to everyone around the the globe i'm not too sure but i'll try and put a few times around there on that site so you can you can see and i'll do that each week so when i know the show what time the show is planned i'll get it up on the site so you can just go back and refresh that page when it's there and ready and you can see us in the flesh naked (laughs) as we (laughs) say. I think we'll start off with new titles this week. We have six new titles. Let's see. The David J. Williams, The Burning Skies. John Scalzi's Zoe's Tale. Analog Magazine, the Science Fiction and Fact Magazine. This Double Bill special issue. We have the New Months Asimovs come through as well. We have Liz Williams, Winter Strike. And Max Free, The Stranger. This is one of Russia's great fantasy writers. It's an imprint. So we'll start off with David J. Williams. This is, if you remember David J. Williams, I gave David J. Williams the the book of the month a while back for the Mirrored Heavens. This is the second one in the in his little kind of trilogy or group of books. And I don't know who David has for his artwork, but each one of these books is stunning in artwork. You know, Mirrored Heavens was just excellent. Now this one, the Burning Skies, is oh man. Do you know what I mean? It's fantastic. The font section, it's like burnt in metal, but the actual picture is of a Pilates kind of meditation pose. You know, something like that. Uh, a female, you know, android, human, part human, pine, part android, female, looking out from maybe a big elevator from a, a high platform station, looking at, at planets and ships. And it's like, see, it's, a, it's an excellent cover that. David J. Williams' Stella hard SF The Burning Skies. In his electrifying debut The Mirrored Heavens, David J. Williams created a dark futuristic world grounded in military rivalries, terror tactics and political wrangling of our own time. Now he takes his masterful blend of military SF, espionage thriller and dystopian cyberpunk one step further to the edge of annihilation. Life as U.S. counterintelligence agent, Claire Haskell, once knew it is in tatters. her mission betrayed her lover dead and her memories of the past suspect. Worse, the defeat of the mysterious insurgent group known as Autumn Rain was not as complete as many believed. It is quickly becoming clear that the group's ultimate goal is not simply to destroy the tenuous global alliances of the 22nd century, but to rule all of humanity and they are starting with the violent destruction of the net and the assassination of the US President. Now it's up to Claire, with her ability to jack her brain into the systems of the enemy to win this impossible war. Battling furiously across the Earth-Moon system, and navigating a complex world filled with both steadfast loyalties and ruthless terrorists, Claire must be ready for Rain's next move, but the true enemy may already be one step ahead of her. Like I say, it's just, that to me, it just gets me, gets me all the hairs on the back of my neck when stand up. Praise for Mirrored Heavens, a cracking cyber thriller. This is Tom Clancy's interfacing with Bruce Sterling. David Williams has hacked into the future. That was Stephen Baxter. I've read these before, actually, four on the first one, but you kind of get, like you say, this book is just stunning. It comes in at, let's see, round about 395 pages, and David's very kindly signed it. <laughs> Thank David. Star, that. That book's amazing. Next up is The Stranger by Max Free. I think that's how you pronounce it, because it's in maybe like a Russian pronunciation. This is what Kirkus Review says about it. If Harry Potter smoked cigarettes and took a certain matter-of-fact pleasure in administrating tough justice, he might like Max Free. It's by Glance, and a trade paperback comes in at twelve ninety nine from Orion Books, or Glance, same, same company. Max Free and the Labyrinth of Echo series is a multi-million copy-selling Russian literary sensation appearing in English for the first time in 2009. Intriguing, remarkable, original, and wry. The Stranger is a piece of absolute enchantment. Now these are all, I can't, can't really actually say the names of these reviewers, but they're all like from the Moscow Times, you know, Literary Review. Be prepared, this book will permanently transform you. Actually, it was Literary Review Moscow. This is from the, I'm not even going to say where this one's from. Splash a bit of enchantment into my glass. There's no better phrase to describe the state of the reader will find themselves in when exposing to this strong, absolute legal literary narcotic, which goes by the name of Max Free. It's getting loads of publicity, this book, to be quite honest, as well, so it's, gonna, you know, it's, it's got some backing behind it. If it weren't for bad luck, Max Free wouldn't have any luck at all. A self-described 20-something classic loser, an insomnic, hardened smoker, a glutton and a loafer. There's nothing much, Max Free, at least not until he arrives in the magical city of Echo. Summoned to Echo by the head of Justice Department's Absolute Order, Sir Juffin Hall, Max's dreams are becoming a reality. But as with all dreams come true, it's not quite reality Max expected. He's about to become a secret agent, tasked to solve the extravagant impossible crimes with nothing but his wits and a handful of unexplained magical abilities to recommend him. Max is going to be thrown into the fray and he can't even have a cigarette first. Like I say, this is a nice chunky book, mind you, as well. It comes in at 550 pages glance, like I say, hard, trade paperback, sorry, Twelve ninety nine, and the cover on is—it's it, just got this, like a, a guy's character, and it's like fogged in smoke. You know, it—it it looks really a nice one. This one, so do look out for the Stranger Max free. Next up is Liz Williams' Winter Strike: A Crisis on Mars in the Far Distant Future. Again, this is a nice cover. It's got some sort of spaceship looking down onto kind of the landscape of Mars, and there's like a, a female on the, on the bow of the of the ship. You know, in that kind of. Um, titanic pose <laughs> beautifully written seamlessly plotted and profound the guardian this comes this is from pan Macmillan's tour division winter strike spy hester ma has been sent to cord to recover details of an ancient weapon during her stay in the martian city she encounters a ghost of a warrior who is encoded representation of the city's bombed library Hester Marr manages to access the library's data but realizes too late that what she has done, by downloading the information, she has virtually guaranteed the use of a weapon against Cord and her government. Meanwhile, in Winter Strike itself, Hester's cousin Sean, imprisoned by a family for accidentally consorting with a male, manages to escape. Her sister Essigu, pursuing her to the dangerous mountains of Mars, discovers a plot by creatures who hold the secrets of the Martian past and its future. While Essigu battles forces in Winter Strike, Hester travels to Earth to attempt to save her city. Praise for Liz Williams... If there is any doubt, Winter Strike confirms that Liz Williams is among the finest SF writers we have. SFX and Sci-Fi now says, Exotic characters, intriguing locations and a twisting plot. A very impressive series for one of Britain's sci-fi most original authors. Again, sci-fi now. Priced at six ninety nine comes in at 358 pages. Winter Strike, Liz Williams. Next up is the July issue that came through my door. The July issue of Asimov's. And in there you will find Kit Reed, Michael Kossuth. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Stephen Baxter with his story Earth 2. And I think that's probably to do with the cover. And the cover's lovely, to be quite honest. It's got this future city in... And it's like a nice kind of... Turgoisy colours with a kinda of a wood coloured city if you can describe I can describe it like that. And there's like a kinda of a building looming out in the front and there's all these kind of lovely shape buildings underneath it. You know, and like I say, I'm liking these art covers. I know Jeremy on sofa notes sometimes thinks the art covers are a little bit wet but this one's really good. I mean this comes in as let's see just how many pages? 100 and, 111 pages. In there you have the novella, which is Stephen Baxter's Earth 2. Novelette, *Simbad and the Sand Sailor by R. Garcia Y. Robertson. Short stories, The Last Apostle by Michael Kusut, Kit Reed's Camp Nowhere. Ian McHugh, Sleepless in the Horse of V. Sarah Jean, Shoes to Run. We have two bits of poetry in there as well by... F.J. Bergman and Esther F. Freisner, I think that's how you pronounce the name, Departments, you've got the Editorial by Sheila Williams, Reflections, Adventures in the Far Future by Robert Silverberg, On Books, Paul de Fillebeau, and SF Convention Calendar, Edward S. Strauss, sorry, sorry Edward, (laughs) there you go, Asimov's July 2009 edition, Coming in also, the July edition is analogue, and it's the double bill for analogue, so it's the July-August 2009. The cover on that has some sort of, like, hogs or animals holding guns in, like, a kind of stripey kind of uniform. Similar, you know, resembles Terry Pratchett's kind of world, you know, so it's it's similar to them kind of things. You, let's look. Pages comes in at 100 and 190 pages strong, and we have a serial, Turning the Grain, Part 1 of 2 by Barry B. Longyear. Novellas, Seed of the Revolution, Daniel Hatch. Future to, failure to Obey, John G. Henry. Novelettes, Bear Who Sang Opera, Scott William Carter. Payback, Tom Loing We have short stories, Duck and Cover by Donna Massa, and The Calvius Plague, Massari K. Link, I'm making a shocking, a shocking attempt at these names. I'm just, you know, you know what the funny thing is? I'm just reading them yeah, you know, and every one I'm, I'm getting wrong. Maybe I maybe might have getting Barry Long here right. right. But you just don't know, because I'm just carrying on and you're know, taking it as gospel that I'm getting that right. But it's a calculus plague, Masairake Lingen, maybe. In the science fact departments, we have the Large Hydron Collider, the new era, Don, Dr. Don Lincoln. Preserving the Memory, Janet Freeman. Special feature is by Michael Carroll, Musings from the First Generations. Probability Zero, which is kind of like a very short story. Global Warman, Harry Turtledove. We've got Reader's Departments. We've got the editorial page. Analytic Laboratory Results. Alternate View, John G. Kramer, Reference Library, Don Sakes, Brass Tax in Times to Come. They go. Analogue Science Fiction in Fact Seeds of Revolution. That's the Daniel Hatch. This is what the the cover is with the kind of the hogs and the dogs all enclosed with swords and muskets. Priced at seven ninety nine. Last up is Zoe Tale, an old man wars novel by John Skalazi again, Tom Pan Macmillan. So this is like the paperback version. So, and I don't know if it came out in hardback or not. Do you know? I don't know if these just go straight to paperback for like straight to video. These go to video (laughs) straight to TV. Far too. Straight to DVD. Praise for John Scalzi: Scalzi's clever dialogue, fast-paced story, and strong characters are reminiscent of Robert A. Heinlein, without sometimes tedious lectures. John Scalzi's debut to Heinlein, Haldeman and Paul is apparent and it gladdens the reader's heart. A good old-fashioned future and great fun, Daily Telegraph. Telegraph. The Guardian says it's a neat scenario allowing Scalzi to pose the question of identity and morality while telling a fast-paced entertaining action-adventure story. John Scalzi's Old Man War, and indeed its sequels, was the best pure splash of science fiction I've read for ages. That was Vector Magazine's Best Books of 2007. So Zoe's tale is, like I say, an old man's war. Meet Zoe Butane Perry, friend, daughter, a colonist stranded on a deadly pioneering world, holy icon to a race of aliens, a player and a pawn in an interstellar chess match to save human race, 17 years old. Zoe and her friends and family are at a pivotal point in history, unwillingly placed at the centre of the galaxy-spanning span, gambit by the Human Colonial Union, which wants to draw an alien alliance into a war neither of them can win or afford. Zoe's colonial home of Renouk is the flashpoint primed by outsiders to explode and destroy everyone Zoe loves, unless she can somehow stop the seemingly inevitable process that will bring destruction to her door. Cover art by John Harris. And I like Scalzi's artwork as well. Do you know what I mean? It's got that kind of blurred ship as if it's being attacked like, like a dogfight, like a big lumbering kind of spaceship there with smoke pouring out of it. And there's like a dogfight, little spaceships flying around it. Zoe's Tale, priced at £6.99. Coming in at Around about 330 pages. There you go. New titles. Out of them all, I'm going to pick David J. Williams as the book I would certainly read. It just, it, the last one was brilliant, and this one I know will be brilliant. Next up is Flash Fiction, and it comes from Rick Norwood who is a mathematician, science fiction writer, and comic book publisher. He edits Comics Review magazine, America's only monthly magazine reprinting of the classic comic strips. He has edited reprint books featuring Prince Valiant, Ali Opp and Buzz Sawyer, and writes television and movie reviews over at the sfsite.com. So the starship's over, and her oral delight is very proud to present Aliens by Rick Norwood. Conrad Montcastle ate a
1: seedless grape and a thin wedge of camembert cheese. He took a sip of fine, old barren wine. The main course had been cleared away, and only the men remained at the table. His grey eyes narrowed. He was a strong man in the prime of his life, and he was not the sort of person to back away from unpleasant truths. What Dr. Hudson has proposed is the only solution to the current crisis. Unless something is done, the aliens will overrun the Earth. But all six of us must agree. The doctor takes the greatest risk, and we cannot ask him to take this risk unless he is assured of our unconditional support. Not only our fortunes and our honor, but our very lives will be at risk if we go ahead with this. We stand or fall as one. Across the table from him, John Lowell did not flinch from the challenge. I'm with you. I think I speak for all of us when I say that unless someone steps forward to save this planet... The human race will no longer be able to call Mother Earth our own. These aliens have no morals, no finer sensibilities, and they breed like flies. His voice rose both in volume and in pitch. Those fools at the United Nations, they keep on giving the aliens greater and greater rights. Rights. What do aliens know of rights? This isn't their planet. Rights must be earned. It is insane to talk about rights that they have not earned and do not deserve. If the government will not act, then patriots must step forward. I've even heard talk of giving aliens the vote. Think, gentlemen. They outnumber us. It would mean the end of the human race. "'Montcastle noted that John's hands were trembling, "'but the man's jaw was set. "'And so he put down the trembling "'to strong emotion rather than weakness. "'He looked around the table at the faces of the other men. "'Their expressions were serious. "'They were his dearest and closest friends, "'and he felt sure he could count on every one of them "'to keep his mouth shut. "'From the parlour came the soft voices of the women,' The servants had vanished into the back of the mansion and would not return unless Moncastle rang the silver bell near his right hand. "'Well, doctor?' Dr. Hudson stood and bowed slightly to the group. He was a large man who wore old-fashioned eyeglasses. "'If we are all agreed, I shall begin with my own field hands. I've already told them that under the new laws... They are free to travel, to try to find better jobs if they can find them. A few will be loyal and stay, but the majority of them don't know the meaning of the word loyalty. They will disperse across the globe. He took a deep breath and continued. Here's the plan. I have told them that they need an inoculation to protect them from diseases that are found in the big cities. They've never been to the cities, so they don't know any better. They'll line up to be inoculated. I have genetically designed a disease that is highly contagious among aliens, but which cannot spread to humans. It has a gestation period of about 30 days, after which the infected alien will experience a slight fever, then coma, then death. It is the most humane way to deal with the alien problem. Montcastle nodded. Very well, gentlemen. Are we all agreed. Each man met his eyes, and he saw that they understood. They were in this together, come what may. He rang the silver bell and a short blue servant in a butler's uniform slid softly into the room. We're ready for a coffee and brandy now, Lechak. Very good, sir. He would miss Lechok. The alien had been with his family for generations, but sacrifices were necessary. Six months had passed. It was winter and the six men were once again assembled. The table setting glittered as before with fine china, linen napkins and crystal goblets, but there was no wine and very little bread. From the kitchen came the sound of the women cleaning up. Gentlemen, Montcastle said, This year's crop lies rotting in the fields. The outer planets refuse to extend us any more credit, and good help isn't to be had for love "'Nor money. "'But at least Earth is once again in the hands of human beings.' "'And,' John Lowell added, "'Nobody suspects us. "'No one has any idea how the plague started.' "'He looked significantly at the doctor. "'That doctor's jowls shook and the flesh hung loose on his frame, "'but there was still fire in his gaze.' We did the right thing, he said. There is not the slightest doubt in my mind that the current famine is the fault of those goddamn liberals.
3: There you go. Links to Rick's site on Front of Starship Sova. Rick, thank you so much for that. Do pop over and say hello to Rick. Don't forget copyright is mister Rick Norwoods. It was narrated by our good friend, Mr. Paul Kajiji. You can find Paul over at theprocessdiary.blogspot.com
1: Imagine the world of the future. Since the moon was destroyed, the Earth's natural resources have all but dried up. We survive on the abundant supply of geothermal energy and live in corporate-sponsored nation-states. While life may seem good on the surface, the planet's orbit is in decline and one day it will stop altogether. Balance must be restored, but the only hope is locked away deep in a remote desert labyrinth. Welcome to the world of character development. An animated sci-fi series currently in production. The Process Diary is a fortnightly podcast documenting the making of character development. I know you love sci fi, but do you love seeing how it all comes together? Do you love watching voice talent, modelers, and animators bring concept sketches to vivid life? The story has been written, the models have been constructed, the quest has been revealed. In 2009, The Process Diary gets a new format and a whole new look. Check it out on iTunes or visit theprocessdiary.blogspot.com and subscribe to the feed any way you can.
3: Next up is Matthew Sanborn-Smith, and this is... It gets... uh, Honestly love getting these in, so enjoy this. Matthew, this is fantastic.
5: Hello, all you hot, hot science fiction fans. Last time Tony let me out of my paper bag, we explored some super-fast fiction. We're speeding in the other direction now for some short stories made long. We shouldn't even say the short word in case we get caught. They're more like novelettes and novellas. The stories ask you for some time, but the payoffs they give back are so, so good. How do I know? Well, I read them. I mean, that's what I do. But also, I cheated this time. I went with stories that were either award nominees or already okayed by top-notch editors. So I had a high-quality filter to start with, and you have an even higher one, me. So these stories are double carbon-based, life-form filtered, irradiated by UV light because I took my laptop outside at one point and there's probably some reverse osmosis happening in there as well. These stories are almost as pure as Tony's water. Each one is a pearl and I am your big meaty oyster. Let's open me up and look inside. The Ray Gun, a love story by James Allen Gardner, is a Hugo and Nebula nominee for Best Novel at found at Asimovs.com. In it, a kid named Jack finds a ray gun in a crater in the woods, and lucky for us it was Jack that found it, because in the hands of most boys, myself included, this would have quickly degenerated into a disturbing horror story. Jack's a better guy than I, and decides to become a hero. He doesn't see the weapon as his ticket to power, he sees it as something he must live up to. He starts working out and studying hard, expecting an adulthood of battles with aliens and enemy agents. What he gets instead is a girlfriend. But his reverence for the ray gun sabotages the good that he's found for himself, and through his teens and early adulthood, Jack constantly struggles to do the right thing in the right way and keep it all a secret. Sometimes things get ugly. There is a ray gun in the story, after all. At both Clark's World and Escape Pod, Ken Scholes imagines Hitler in Paris. Okay, that's not really a stretch. How about Hitler in Paris as an aging, starving artist? No? No. How about the Napoleonic Empire never fell? How about that, huh? Not good enough? Okay. How about Hitler, his Jewish girlfriend, Ernest Hemingway, and Charlie Chaplin all teaming up to take on the Napoleonic Empire? Holy crap, now that's a story. Ken Scholes has the fantasy folks all frothed up about his debut novel, Lamentation. And after reading this story, I got a little foamy myself. I don't think Summer in Paris, Light from the Sky, is nominated for anything. I just happened upon it and loved it. The main characters, though well known to us, have found no fame in this world. They're a collection of vagabonds hanging out and drinking every night in a bar run by Charles de Gaulle. Hitler's on the verge of giving up his artistic dreams and getting a sensible office job, but his friends and the growing injustice in the empire begin to work on him. He, a nobody at the age of 52, stumbles down a revolutionary path, drawn not by ideology, but by his compassion for those he loves, to become a very different type of leader. Folks, let me tell you something. If Ken Scholes can make you root for Hitler, he's got some writing chops. Not only a great story, but a great story told well. Robert Reed is one of our most prolific short story writers. I've been enjoying his stuff for years. I don't know if his stories are getting darker, or the mud of them is just sucking me into its depths. Truth, a Hugo-nominated novella from Asimov's, is a pretty dark damn story, and Reed has a way of making you despise your own species. Early on, in the War Against Terror, a traveler from the future was captured in Montana with five kilograms of uranium. Unfortunately, his interrogators discover that he was just one of many troublemakers, and the rest are still running loose with technology beyond our comprehension. After 12 years in holding, the government still has little in the way of solid leads. Now the case's superstar interrogator is dead by his own hand. His hand-picked replacement has to get the truth from the terrorist as one by one cities are burned off the face of the earth. This is a story so full of secrets that the reader won't know whom to trust. Every scene is body language and lies, it's conspiracy and fear, claustrophobia and paranoia on the long, slow, and inevitable slide into total annihilation. After it's over, you're going to want to tear your clothes off and stand out in the rain for a while. Take some deep breaths and think of laughing babies and furry kittens and scrape the soot off of your soul. It pleases me to see science fiction at newyorker.com, and as I poke around there more, I'm pleased more. Admittedly, I reached back a bit for this one, and that this one is John by George Saunders. John is about a guy named Dave. No, it's not really. It's about John. John's a guy who's lived most of his life in a dorm with a bunch of other young adults who were purchased from their parents at a very young age to be turned into a captive and permanent focus group. They all spend their days testing new products and watching commercials. So many, in fact, commercial references have become the major metaphors of their lives john one day sneaks over to the girls dorm to pay a visit to his dear friend carolyn and before you can avert your eyes they've got a little family in the works carolyn being in a family way doesn't get the same drugs as everyone else and begins to have crazy thoughts like thinking that maybe the life she has isn't the most wonderful life there is she's ready to unplug herself from the system and get normal but that's not normal to john the guy's got a pretty sweet life It's a huge decision to go out and start a new life in an unknown world with his family or take it easy, medicate himself, and watch TV all day. He, of course, makes the wrong decision. The language is wonderful in this one. Not entirely a new slang, but interesting turns of phrase that make you feel you're a little bit into the future. Maybe a clockwork orange without the Russian. John holds his relationship up against the ideal ones he sees on insurance ads and KFC commercials, and the perfection of his pie-baking mother who lives only and forever and a memory loop in his mind. It's a great story, not because of a killer ending, but because it's good throughout. That made me think that maybe we who regularly soak ourselves in the essential oils of science fiction are too conditioned by the Twilight Zone mentality, the little twisty at the end. That mentality wasn't begun with the Twilight Zone, but was popularized by it, and it is filtered through the genre until we are conditioned to the point of being hypersensitive to that killer last line, and the surprise that will make us overtip our already tipping chairs. Such an ending doesn't always have to be. Sometimes we just get good stories. In the novel Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein travels to England after his creation murders Victor's little brother. What if, while he was in England, en route to Scotland to create a wife for his baby, Victor happened to meet Jane Austen's Bennett sisters. Pride and Prometheus by John Kessel, that's what if. You'll find it in a wide variety of free formats within the collection, The Bomb Plan for Financial Independence, and other stories from Small Beer Press. I read Frankenstein 20 years ago, but I must admit I hadn't cracked Pride and Prejudice. But that's what good old Wikipedia is for, when even the Cliff's Notes are far too long. Pride and Prometheus, this year's Nebula winner, and also a Hugo nominee in the Novelette category, takes place at least nine years after the wedding of Elizabeth and Darcy, and focuses on Elizabeth's bookish middle sister, Mary Bennett. Her love of science makes for a multitude of conversation starters with the already tortured Victor Frankenstein. As for him, Victor worries from Mary's line of questioning that she's figuring out far too much about his past. How exactly might a conversation about grave robbing play out at a proper Regency dinner party? And who's that enormous figure lurking in the shadows outside of the ballroom over there? The events are timed so that the tale could have taken place in each of their fictional worlds. It's a well-written work that seems to meld the two very different atmospheres into one rather smoothly. It grabbed me so that I forgot about its length and fell into it feet last. It's a concept and a story that's made me want to tell everyone I know about it. I mean, besides you people. Oh, it's a grand tub of marvelous fictions this time around. Stuff you'll want to take your time reading. Climb into that tub and rub these stories all over your naked body while enjoying a selection of adult beverages. I must be going now to wander the lighty lands in search of more crawling fiction so that I might stomp it flat, peel it from my shoe, and present it to you for your delight. This is Matthew Sanborn Smith wishing that all your fumes be lemon-scented.
3: I love you all. There you go, Matthew Sanborn Smith. Fiction Crawler is just a a vital part, a vital cog in the wheel of Starship Sova, and I'm so pleased Matthew's doing this. Matt, thank you so much. Next week, come on to our main fiction, and this is just an amazing story of a sweet slow dance in the wake of temporary dogs by Adam Troy Castro. Just a little warning before we get into the main fiction. There is a little disturbing scene in this, so please be advised, this is not really for anyone of a minor age. That means you, Curtis. Adam Troy Castro made his first professional sale to Spy Magazine in 1987. Since then, he has published 12 books and almost 80 short stories. Among those stories are Baby Girl Diamond, nominated for a Bram Stoker Award, and the Funeral March of the Marinettes, nominated for Hugo and Nebula Award in 1998. The Astronaut from Wyoming is the collaboration with Jerry Olshan that appeared in Analog and was nominated for the Hugo and Nebula Award in 2000. This story that you're about to listen to now was nominated for 2003 Nebula Award. His original short story collections include Lost in Booth 9, published by Silver Salamander Press in 1993, and Desperate Decaying Darkness, published by Wildside Press in 2000. He is also the author of Spider-Man novels, Time's Arrow, The Present, written in collaboration with Tom DeFalco. Story is narrated today by Mike Boris. Like I said before, Mike Boris is new to Starship Sova, but this is just one stunning narration. And like I say, we will certainly get Mike back. It is a fantastic narration. He is a ceramic engineer by education, but also does software implementations for manufacturing plants. He says he tries to bike to work whenever he can, but it's 25 miles one way, and he doesn't do that too often. He did a brief stint at a radio a couple of years ago at the part-time for the WFYI Indies Public Radio Station. <laughs> WFYI. <laughs> Sounds like a jolly radio station. This is WFYI. And he spent a summer doing movie reviews over at Top 40 FM Morning Show. He says the host got fired there and he went out with the bathwater. And in 2000, he was on, who wants to be a millionaire? He says he was no point two seconds too slow to get into the hot seat. So, Mike, this is a fine narration. Adam, this is a great story. So the Starship's Over and her oral delights is very proud to present Of a Sweet Slow Dance
6: in the Wake of Temporary Dogs by Adam Troy Castro Before On the last night before the end of everything, the stars shine like a fortune in jewels, enriching all who walk the quaint cobblestone streets of Ennisborg. It is a celebration night, like most nights in the capital city. The courtyard below my balcony is alive with light and music. Young people drink and laugh and dance. Gypsies in silk finery play bouncy tunes on harmonicas and mandolins. Many wave at me, shouting invitations to join them. One muscular young man with impossibly long legs and a face equipped with a permanent grin takes it upon himself to sprint the length of the courtyard, only to somersault over the glittering fountain at its center. For a heartbeat out of time, he seems to float, enchanted over the water. Then I join his friends in applause as he belly flops, drenching himself and the long-haired girls waiting at the fountain's other rim. The girls are not upset, but delighted. Their giggles tinkle like wind chimes as they splash across the fountain themselves, "'flinging curtains of silver water "'as their shiny black hair bobs back and forth in the night. "'Intoxicated from a mixture of the excellent local wine "'and the even better local weed, "'I consider joining them, "'perhaps the boring way via the stairs, "'and perhaps via a great daredevil leap from the balcony. "'I am, after all, stripped to the waist. "'The ridiculous boxers I bought on the ship here "'could double as a bathing suit, "'and the way I feel right now, "'I could not only make the fountain, "'but also sail to the moon.' But after a moment's consideration, I decide not. That's the kind of grand theatrical gesture visitors to Ennisborg make on their first night, when they're still overwhelmed by its magic. I have been here nine nights. I have known the festivals that make every night in the capital city a fresh adventure. I have explored the Hanging Gardens with all their deceptive challenges. I have climbed the Towers of Pearl just down the coast. I have ridden stallions across Ennisborg's Downs and plunged at midnight into the warm waters of the eastern sea. I have tasted a hundred pleasures, and wallowed in a hundred more, and, though far from sick of them, feel ready to take them at a more relaxed pace, partaking not as a starving man, but as a connoisseur. I want to be less a stranger driven by lust, but a lover driven by passion. So I just take a deep breath and bask in the air that wafts over the slanting tiled roofs, A perfume composed of equal parts sex and spice and the tang of the nearby ocean all the more precious for being part of the last night before the end of everything it occurs to me not for the first time that this might be the best moment of my life a life that back home with its fast pace and its anonymous workplaces and climate-controlled gleaming plastic everything was so impoverished that it's amazing I have any remaining ability to recognize joy and transcendence at all. In Ennisborg, such epiphanies seem to come several times a minute. The place seems determined to make me a poet. And if I don't watch out, I might hunt down paper and pencil and scrawl a few lines, struggling to capture the inexpressible in a cage of fool, amateurish June moon and spoon. The curtains behind me rustle and a familiar presence leaves my darkened hotel room to join me on the balcony. I don't turn to greet her, but instead close my eyes as she wraps me in two soft arms redolent of wine and perfume and sex. Her hands meet at the center of my chest. She rests a chin on my shoulder and murmurs my name in the musical accent that marks every word spoken by every citizen of Ennisborg. Robert, she says and there's something a little petulant about the way she stresses the first syllable, something adorable and mocking in the way she chides me for not paying enough attention to her. By the time I register the feel of her bare breasts against my bare back, and realize in my besotted way that she's mad, she's insane, she's come out on the balcony in full view of everybody without first throwing on something to cover herself, "'The youths frolicking in the fountain have already spotted her "'and begun to serenade us with a chorus of delighted cheers. "'Kiss her!' shouts a boy. "'Come on!' begs a girl. "'Let us see!' yells a third. "'Don't go inside. Make love out here!' "'When I turn to kiss the woman behind me, "'I am cheered like a conqueror leading a triumphant army into Rome. "'Her name is Carolis, "'and she is, of course, one of the flowers of Ennisborg. "'A rare beauty indeed, "'even in a country where beauty is everywhere.' She is tall and lush, with dark eyes, skin the color of caramel, and a smile that seems to hint at secrets propriety won't let her mention. Her shiny black hair cascades down her back in waves, reflecting light even when everything around her seems to be dark. I met her the day after my arrival, when I was just a dazed and exhausted tourist, sitting alone in a café redolent with rich ground coffee. I wasn't just off the boat then, not really. I had already enjoyed a long, awkward night being swept up by one celebration after another, accepting embraces from strangers determined to become friends, and hearing my name, once given, become a chant of hearty congratulations from those applauding my successful escape from the land of everyday life. I had danced the whole night, cheered at the fires of dawn, wept for reasons that puzzled me still, and stumbled to bed where I enjoyed the dreamless bliss that comes from exhaustion. It was the best night I'd known in a long time, but I was a visitor still, reluctant to surrender even the invisible chains that shackled me, and even as i jerked myself awake with caffeine, I'd felt tired, surfeited, at odds." I was so adrift that when Carolus sauntered in, her hair still tasseled and cheeks still shining from the celebrations of the night before, her dress of many patches rustling about her ankles in a riot of multiple colors, I almost failed to notice her. But then she'd sat down opposite me and declared in the sternest of all possible tones that even foreigners, with all their worries, weren't allowed to wear grimaces like mine in Ennisburg. I blinked, almost believing her, because I'd heard words just like those the previous night from a pair of fellow visitors who had caught me lost in a moment of similar repose. Then she tittered, first beneath her breath, and then with unguarded amusement, not understanding my resistance to Ennisborg's charms. But still intrigued, she explained much later, by the great passion she saw imprisoned behind my grey, civilized mane, "'You are my project,' she said. "'In one expansive moment, I am going to take a tamed man and make him a native of Ennisborg.'" She may well succeed, for we have been in love since the first day, both with each other and with the land whose wonders she has been showing me ever since. We have fought only once, just yesterday, when in a thoughtless lapse I suggested that she return with me on the ship home. Her eyes flashed in the exasperation she always showed at my moments of thoughtless naivete, an irritation so grand that it bordered on contempt. She told me it was an arrogant idea the kind only a foreigner could have why would she leave this place that has given her life and why would i think so much of her to believe that she would was that all she was to me a prize to be taken home like a souvenir to impress my friends with a trip abroad didn't i see how diminished she would be if i ever did that to her "'Would you blind me?' she demanded. "'Would you amputate my limbs? "'Would you peel strips off my skin, slicing off piece after piece "'until there was nothing left of me but the parts that remained convenient to you?' "'This is my country, Robert, my blood.' "'And she was right, for she embodies Ennisburg as much as the buildings themselves, "'and for her to abandon it would be a crime against both person and place. "'Both would be diminished, as much as I'll be diminished, "'if I have to leave her behind.' We leave the balcony and go back inside, where, for a moment in the warm and sweet-smelling room, we come close to collapsing on the bed again, for what seems the thousandth time since we woke sore but passionate this morning. But this is the last night before the end of everything, when Ennisborg's wonders emerge in their sharpest relief. They are not to be missed, just so we can keep to ourselves. And so she touches a finger to the tip of my nose and commands that it's time to go back into the world. I obey." We dress i wear an open vest over baggy trousers with a great swooping slouch hat glorious in its vivid testimony to annesburg's power to make me play the willing fool she wears a fringed blouse and another ankle length skirt of many patches slit to mid thigh to expose a magnificent expanse of leg dozens of carved wooden bracelets all loose enough to shift when she moves clack like maracas along her forearms her lips are red her flowered hair aglow with reflected light. Two curling locks meet in the center of her forehead, right above her eyes, like mischievous parentheses. Somewhere she wears bells. Laughing, she leads me from the room and down the narrow stairs, chattering away at our fellow guests as they march in twos and threes toward their own celebrations of this last night. We pass a man festooned with parrots, a woman with a face painted like an Italian landscape, a fire-eater, a juggler in a suit of carnival color, A cavorting clown-faced monkey who hands me a grape and accepts a small coin in payment. Lovers of all possible and some impossible gender combinations flash inebriated grins as they surrender their passions in darkened alcoves. Almost everybody we pass is singing or dancing or sharing dizzy, disbelieving embraces. Every time I pause in sheer amazement at something I see, Carolus chuckles at my saucer-eyed disbelief and pulls me along, whispering that none of this would be half as marvelous without me there to witness it. Even the two fellow tourists we jostle, as we pass through the arched entranceway and into the raucous excitement of the street, become part of the excitement, because I know them. They are the ones I met on that first lost day before Carolus. "'before I learned that Ennisburg was not just a vacation destination "'offered as brief reward for earning enough "'to redeem a year of dullness and conformity, "'but the repository of everything I'd ever missed "'in my flavorless excuse for a life. "'Jerry and D. Martell are grey retirees "'from some awful industrial place "'where Dee had done something or other with decorating, "'and Jerry had managed a firm that molded the plastic shells "'other companies used to enclose the guts of useful kitchen appliances.' when they talk about their jobs now, as they did when they found me that first night, they shudder with the realization that such things swallowed so many years of finite lives. They were delivered when they vacationed in Ennisburg, choosing it at random among all the other oases of tamed exoticism the modern world maintains to make people forget how sterile and homogeneous things have become. On arriving, they discovered that it was not a tourist trap. Not an overdeveloped sham, not a fraud, and not an excuse to sell plastic souvenirs that testify to nothing but the inane gullibility of the people who buy them, but the real thing, the special place, the haven that made them the people they had always meant to be. They'd emigrated, and what Jerry said with a wink was their, quote, alternative to senility, end quote. Was it a sacrifice for us? Jerry asked when we met. Did it mean abandoning our security? Did it even mean embracing some hardships? Of course it did. It meant all those things and more. You may not think so, but then you're a baby. You haven't even been in Annisburg long enough to know. But our lives back home were empty. They were nothing. At least here, life has a flavor. At least here, life is something to be treasured. Living seven years later as natives, spending half their time in the capital and half their time out in the country, exploring caves and fording rivers and performing songs they make up on the spot— They each look thirty years younger than their mere calendar ages, with Jerry lean and robust and tan, Dee shorter and brighter and interested in everything. They remember me from nine days ago and embrace me like a son, exclaiming how marvelous I look, how relaxed I seem in comparison to the timid creature they met then. They want to know if this means I'm going to stay. I blush and admit I don't know. I introduce them to Carolus, and they say it seems an easy choice to them. The women hit it off. Jerry suggests a local inn where we can hear a guitarist, he knows. And before long, we're there, claiming a corner table between dances, and listening to his friend. Another old man, an ancient man, really, with twinkling eyes and spotted scalp and a wispy comic opera mustache that, dangling to his collarbone, looks like a boomerang covered with lint. "'It's not that I hate my country,' Jerry says, when the women have left together, in the way that women have.' His eyes shine and his voice slurs from the effects of too much drink. I can't. I know my history. I know the things she's accomplished, the principles she's stood for, the challenges she's faced. I've even been around for more of it than I care to remember. But coming here was not abandoning her. It was abandoning what she'd become. It was abandoning the drive-thrus and the ATMs and the talking heads who pretend they have all the answers, but... Would be lucky to remember how to tie their shoes. It was remembering what life was supposed to be all about, and seizing it with both hands while we still had a few good years left in us. It was a victory, Robert, an act of sheer moral victory. Do you see, Robert? Do do you see? I tell him I see. You think you do, but you still have a ticket out day after tomorrow, sundown. Right? Ah, you're still a tourist. You're still too scared to take the leap. But stay here a few more weeks and then tell me that you see. I might just do that, I say. I might stay here the rest of my life. He dismisses me with a wave of his hand. Sure, you say that. You say that now. You say that because you think it's so easy to say that. You haven't even begun to imagine the commitment it takes. But I love Carolus. Of course you do. "'But will you be fair to her in the end, will you? "'You're not her first tourist, you know.' "'Jerry has become too intense for me, "'in a way utterly at odds with the usual flavor of life in Ennisburg. "'If he presses on, I might have to tell him to stop. "'But I am rescued. "'The man with the wispy mustache returns from the bar with a fresh mug of beer, "'sets it beside him on a three-legged stool.' picks up a stringed instrument, a lot like a misshapen guitar, and begins to sing a ballad in a language I don't understand. It's one of Ennisborg's many dialects, a tongue distinguished by deep rolling consonants and rich sensual tones, so expressive in the way it cavorts the length of an average sentence that I don't need a translation to know that he's singing a hymn to a lost love long remembered. When he closes his eyes, I can almost imagine him as the fresh-faced young boy staring with earnest panic at the eyes of the fresh-faced young woman whose beauty first made him want to sing such songs. He sings of pain, a sense of loss, a longing for something denied to him. But there is also wonder, a sense of amazement at all the dreams he'd ever managed to fulfill. Or maybe that's just my head, making a song mean what I want it to mean. In either event, the music is slow and heartfelt until some kind of mid-verse epiphany sends its tempo flying. And all of a sudden the drum beats and the hands clap and the darkened room bursts with men and women rising from the shadows to meet on the dance floor in an explosion of flailing hair and whirling bodies. There are children on shoulders and babies on backs and a hundred voices united in the chorus of the mustached man's song, which seems to fill our veins with fire. Jerry has already slid away, his rant of a few moments before forgotten in the urgency of the moment. I recognize nobody around me, but nevertheless see no strangers. As I decide to stay in Annisburg, to spend the rest of my life with Carolus, to raise a family... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
4: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
6: Family with her. To keep turning pages in this book I've just begun to write, the natives seem to recognize the difference in me. I'm handed a baby, which I kiss to the sound of cheers. I hand it back and I'm handed another, then another, the music grows louder more insistent a wisp of smoke drifts by clove tobacco hashish or something else it's there and then it's gone i blink and catch a glimpse of carolus cut off by the crowd she's trying to get to me her eyes wide her face shining her need urgent she knows i have decided she can tell she is as radiant as i have ever seen her and though jostled by the mob she is determined to make her way to my side She, too, has something to say, something that needs to be spoken, through shattered teeth and a mouth filled with blood. During. There is no sunlight. The skies are too sullied by the smoke of the burning buildings to admit the existence of dawn. What arrives instead are gray and sickly shadows, over a moonscape so marked with craters and shattered rubble that in most places it's hard to tell where the buildings stood in the first place. Every few seconds the soot above us brightens, becoming as blinding as the parody of the light it's usurped, and rocks the city with flame and thunder. Debris pelts everything below. A starving dog cowering in a hollow formed by two shattered walls bolts seeking better haven in a honeycomb of fallen masonry fifty meters of sheer hell away. But even before it can round the first twisted corpse, a solid wall of shrapnel reduces the animal to a scarlet mist falling on torn flesh. I witness its death from the sight of my own. I am already dead. I still happen to be breathing, but that's a pure accident. Location is all. The little girl who'd been racing along two paces ahead of me, mad with fear, forced her to rip off her flaming clothes to reveal the bubbling black scar the chemical burns have made of her back, is now a corpse. She's a pair of legs protruding from a mound of fallen brick. Her left foot still bears a shoe. Her right is a pale, naked, moon-white, perfect, unbloodied. I, who had been racing along right behind her, am not so fortunate. The same concussion wave that put her out of her misery sent me flying. Runaway stones have torn deep furrows in my legs, my belly, my face, my chest. I have one seeping gash across my abdomen and another across one cheek. Both painful, but nothing next to the greater damage done by the cornice that landed on my right knee, splintering the bone and crushing my leg as close to flat as a leg can get without bursting free of its cradling flesh. The stone tumbled on as soon as it did its work, settling in a pile of similar rocks. It looks like any other, but I still think I can identify it from over here, using the marks it left along the filthy ground. I have landed in a carpet of broken glass a meter or so from what, for a standing person, would be a ragged waist-high remnant of wall. It is good fortune, I suppose, judging from the steady tattoo of shrapnel and rifle fire impacting against the other side. It's that wall which for the moment spares me the fate of the little girl and the dog. Chance has also favored me by letting me land within sight of an irregular gap in that wall, affording me a view of what used to be the street, but which is right now a narrow negotiable path between craters and mounds of smoking debris. My field of vision is not large, but it was enough to show me what happened to the dog. If I am to survive this... It must also allow me to see rescue workers, refugees, even soldiers capable of dragging me to wherever the wounded are brought. But so far, there is no help to be seen. Most of the time, even my fragmentary view is obscured by smoke of varying colors. White, which, though steaming hot, is also as thin and endurable, passing over me without permanent damage. Black, which sickens me with its mingled flavors of burning rubber and bubbling flesh, and the caustic yellow, which burns my eyes and leaves me gagging with the need to void a stomach already long empty. I lick my lips, which are dry and cracked and pitted, and recognize both hunger and thirst in the way the world pales before me. It is the last detail. Everything I consumed yesterday, when Ennisburg was paradise, is gone. It and everything I had for several days before. Suddenly, I'm starving to death. There is another great burst of sound and light, so close parts of me shake apart. I try to scream, but my throat is dry, my voice a mere wisp, my mouth a sewer sickening from the mingled tastes of blood and ash and things turned rotten inside me. I see a dark shape, a man, Jerry Martell, in fact, move fast past the gap in the wall. I hear automatic fire, and I hear his brief cry as he hits the dirt in a crunch of flesh and gravel. He's not quite dead at first, and though he does not know I am here, just out of sight, a collaborator in his helplessness, he cries out to me anyway, a bubbling, childish cry, aware that it's about to be cut off, but hoping in this instant that it reaches a listener willing to care. I can't offer the compassion Jerry craves because I hate him too much for bringing fresh dangers so close to the place where I already lie broken. I want him gone. A second later, fate obliges me with another burst of automatic weapons fire. Brick chips fill the air like angry bees, digging more miniature craters. One big one strikes my ravaged knee and I spasm, grimacing as my bowels let loose, knowing it won't matter because I've released everything I had inside me long ago. I feel relief. He was my friend, but I'm safer with him gone. I smell more smoke. I taste mud. I hear taunts in languages I don't recognize, cries and curses in the tongues spoken in Ennisburg. A wave of heat somewhere near me alerts me that a fire has broken out. I drag myself across ragged stones and broken glass closer to the gap in the wall, entertaining vainglorious ambitions of perhaps crawling through and making it untouched through the carnage to some place where people can fix me. But the pain is too much, and I collapse, bleeding now from a dozen fresher wounds, having accomplished nothing but to provide myself a better view. I see the elderly musician with the huge mustache stumble on by, his eyes closed, his face a sheen of blood, his arms dangling blistered and lifeless at his sides, each blackened and swollen to four times its natural size. I see a woman half mad, her mouth ajar in an unending silent scream clutching a tightly wrapped but still ragged bundle in a flannel blanket, unwilling to notice that whatever it held is now just a glistening smear across her chest. I see a tall and robust and athletic man stumble on by, his eyes vacant, his expression insane, his jaw ripped free and dangling from his face by a braided ribbon of flesh. I see all that and I hear more explosions and I watch as some of the fleeing people fall, either whole or in pieces and I listen as some are released by death, and more importantly, as others are not. Something moving at insane speed whistles through the sky above, passing so near that its slipstream tugs at my skin. I almost imagine it pulling me off the ground, lifting me into the air, allowing me a brief moment of flight behind it before it strikes and obliterates its target. For a moment, I wish it would. Even that end would be better than a deathbed of shattered rock and slivered glass. Then comes the brightest burst of light and most deafening wave of thunder yet, and for a time I become blind and deaf, with everything around me reduced to a field of pure white. When the world comes back not at all improved, it is easy to see the four young men in identical uniforms who huddle in a little alcove some twenty meters away. There's not much to them, these young men. They all carry rifles, they all wear heavy packs, they're all little more than boys, and their baggy uniforms testify to a long time gone without decent food. When one turns my way, facing me and perhaps even seeing me, but not registering me as a living inhabitant of the corpse-strewn landscape, his eyes look sunken, haunted, unimaginably ancient. He is, I realize, as mad as the most pitiful among the wounded. A reasonable response to his environment am one I would share if I could divest the damnable sanity that forces me to keep reacting to this horror. He turns back to his comrades and says something. Then he looks over them at something beyond my own limited field of vision, and his smile is enough to make me crave death all over again. His comrades look where he's looking and smile the same way, all four of them showing their teeth. The three additional soldiers picking their way through the rubble bear a woman between them. It is careless. Two stand to either side of her, holding her arms. A third stands behind her, holding a serrated knife to her throat with one hand and holding a tight grip on her hair with the other. That soldier keeps jabbing his knee into the small of her back to keep her going. He has to. She's struggling with every ounce of strength available to her, pulling from side to side, digging her feet into the ground, cursing them to a thousand hells every time they jerk her off her feet and force her onward she is magnificent my carolus she is stronger more vibrant than any one of them in any fair fight she would be the only one left standing but she is held by three and while she could find opportunity to escape three the soldiers from the alcove who now rush to help their comrades bring the total all the way up to seven there is no hope with seven i know this even as i drag myself toward her from the place where i lie broken I know this even as she struggles to drive her tormentors away with furious kicks, but these boys are too experienced with such things. They take her by the ankles, lift her off the ground, and bear her squirming and struggling form across the ravaged pavement to a clear place in the rubble, where they pin her to the ground, each one taking a limb. They must struggle to keep her motionless. The soldier with the darkest eyes unslings his rifle, weighs it in his arms, and smashes its butt across her jaw. The bottom half of her face crumples like shattered pottery. There is nothing I can do but continue to crawl toward her, toward them. Carolus coughs out a bubble of fresh blood. Fragments of teeth, driven from her mouth, cling to what's left of her chin. She shrieks and convulses and tries to kick. Her legs remain held. The same soldier who just smashed her face now sees that his job is not yet done. He raises his rifle above his head and drives the stock hard into her belly. She wheezes and chokes. She tries to curl into a ball of helpless misery, seeking escape within herself. But the soldiers won't even permit that. Another blow, this one to her forehead, takes what little fight is left. Her eyes turn to blackened smears. Her nose blows pink bubbles which burst and dribble down her cheeks in rivulets. She murmurs an animal noise. The soldier responsible for making her manageable makes a joke in a language I don't know, which can't possibly be funny, but still makes the others laugh. They rip off her filthy dress and spread her legs farther apart. The leader steps away, props his rifle against a fragment of wall, and returns, dropping his pants. As he gives his swollen penis a lascivious little waggle, I observe something wrong with it, something I can see from a distance— It looks green, diseased, half-rotted. But he descends, forcing himself into her, cursing her with every thrust, his cruel animal grunts matched by her own bubbling exhalations, less gasps of pain or protest at her violation than the involuntary noises made as her diaphragm is compressed again and again and again. It doesn't last long. By the time he pulls out, shakes himself off, and pulls his pants back up. The glimpse I catch of her face is enough to confirm that she's no longer here. Carolus is alive, all right. I can see her labored breath. I can feel the outrage almost as much as she does. But she's not in this place in time. Her mind has abandoned this particular battlefield for another. Inside her head, which might not provide any comfort, but nevertheless belongs only to her. What's left in this killing ground doesn't even seem to notice as one of the other soldiers releases his grip on her right arm, takes his position, and commences a fresh rape. There are no words sufficient for the hate I feel. I am a human being with a human being's dimensions, but the hate is bigger than my capacity to contain it. It doesn't just fill me, it replaces me. "'It becomes everything I am. "'I want to claw at them and snap at them "'and spew hatred at them "'and rip out their throats with my teeth. "'I want to leave them blackened corpses "'and I want to go back to wherever they came from "'and make rotting flesh of their own wives and mothers. "'I want to bathe in their blood. "'I want to die killing them. "'I want to scar the earth where they were born. "'I want to salt the farmland "'so nothing ever grows there again. "'If hatred alone lent strength, "'I would rend the world itself.' But I cry out without a voice, and I crawl forward without quite managing to move, and I make some pathetic little sound or another, and it carries across the smoky distance between me and them, and it accomplishes nothing but to advise the enemy that I am here. In a single spasm of readiness, they all release Carolus, grab their weapons, scan the rubble field for the source of the fresh sound. The one using her at the moment needs only an extra second to disengage, but he pulls free in such a panic spasm that he tumbles backwards, slamming his pantless buttocks into a puddle of something too colored by rainbows to qualify as water. The leader sees me. He rolls his eyes, pulls a serrated blade from its sheath at his hip, and covers the distance between us in three seconds. The determined hatred I felt a heartbeat ago disappears. I know that he's the end of me and that I can't fight him, and I can pray that I can bargain with him instead, that I can barter Carolus for mercy or medical attention or even an easier death. I think all this, betraying her, and it makes me hate myself. That's the worst. This moment of seeing myself plain, this illustration of the foul bargains I'd be willing to make in exchange for a few added seconds of life. It doesn't matter that there aren't any bargains. I shouldn't have wanted any. I grope for his knife as it descends, but it just opens the palms of my hands and christens my face and chest with blood, soon matched by that which flows when he guts me from crotch to ribcage. My colon spills out in thick ropes, steaming in the morning air. I feel cold. The agony tears at me. I can't even hope for death. I want more than death. I want more than oblivion. I want erasure. I want a retroactive ending. I want to wipe out my whole life, starting from my conception. Nothing, not even the happy moments, is worth even a few seconds of this. It would be better if I'd never lived. But I don't die yet. I don't die when he walks away, or when he and his fellow soldiers return to their fun with Carolus. I don't die when they abandon her, And leave in her place a broken thing that spends the next hours choking on its own blood i don't even die when the explosions start again and the dust salts my wounds with little burning embers i don't die when the ground against my back shakes like a prehistoric beast about to tear itself apart with rage i don't even die when the rats come to me to enjoy a fresh meal i want to die but maybe that release is more than i deserve So I lie on my back beneath a cloudscape of smoke and ash, and I listen to Carolus choke, and I listen to the gunfire, and I curse that sociopathic monster god, and I do nothing, nothing, when the flies come to lay their eggs. After. I wake on a bed of freshly mowed grass. The air is cool and refreshing, the sky as blue as a dream, the breeze a delicious mixture of scents ranging from sea salt to the sweatier perfume of passing horses. From the light I know it can't be too long after dawn, but I can tell I'm not the first one up. I can hear songbirds, the sounds of laughing children, barking dogs, music played at low volumes from little radios. Unwilling to trust the sensations of peace, I resist getting up long enough to first grab a fistful of grass, luxuriating in the feel of the long, thin blades as they bunch up between my fingers. They're miraculous. They're alive. I'm alive. I turn my head and see where I am, one of the city's many small parks, a place lined with trees and decorated with orchid gardens. The buildings visible past the tree line are uncratered and intact. I'm intact. The other bodies I see, scattered here and there across the lawn, are not corpses, but sleepers, still snoring away after a long, lazy evening beneath the stars. There are many couples, even a few families with children, all peaceful, all unworried about predators, either animal or human. Even the terror, the trauma, the soul-withering hate, the easy savagery that subsumes all powerless victims, all the emotional scars that had ripped me apart, have faded. And the only nearby smoke comes from a sandpit not far upwind, where a jolly bearded man in colorful suspenders has begun to cook himself an outdoor breakfast. I rise, unscarred and unbroken, clad in comfortable native clothing, baggy shorts, a vest, a jaunty feathered hat. I even have a wine bottle, three-quarters empty, and a pleasant taste in my mouth to go with it. I drink the rest and smile at the pleasant buzz. The thirst remains, but for something non-alcoholic. I need water. I itch from the stray blades of grass peppering my exposed calves and forearms. I contort my back, feeling the vertebrae pop. It feels good. I stretch to get my circulation going. I luxuriate in the tingle of the morning air. Across the meadow, a little girl points at me and smiles. She's the same little girl I saw crushed by masonry yesterday. It takes me a second to smile back and wave, a second spent wondering if she recognizes me, if she finds me an unpleasant reminder. If so, there's no way to tell from the way she bears herself. She betrays no trauma at all. Rather, she looks as blessed as any other creature of Ennisborg. The inevitable comparison to Carolus assigns me my first mission for the day. I have to find her, hold her, confirm that she too has emerged unscathed from the madness of the day before. She must have, given the rules here, but the protective instincts of the human male still need to be respected. So I wander from the park into the streets of a capital city just starting to bustle with life past the gondolas taking lovers down the canals, past the merchants hawking vegetables swollen with flavor, past a juggler in a coat of carnival color who has put down his flaming batons and begun to toss delighted children instead. I see a hundred faces I know, all of whom nod with the greatest possible warmth upon seeing me, perhaps recognizing, in my distracted expression, the look of a foreigner who has just experienced his first taste of Ennisborg's greatest miracle." Nobody looks haunted. Nobody looks terrorized. Nobody looks like the survivors of madness. They have shaken off the firebombings that reduced them to screaming torches, the bayonets that jabbed through their hearts, the tiny rooms where they were tortured at inhuman length for information they did not have. They have shrugged away the hopelessness and the rampant disease in the mass graves where they were tossed beside their bullet-riddled neighbors while still breathing themselves. They remember it all, as I remember it all. But that was yesterday, not today. And this is Ennisborg, a land where it never happened, a land which will know nothing but joy until the end of everything comes again, ten days from now. On my way back to the hotel I pass the inn where Carolus and I went dancing the night before the end of everything. The scents that waft through the open door are enough to make me swoon, I almost pass by, determined to find Carolus before worrying about my base animal needs. But then I hear deep-braying laughter from inside, laughter I recognize as Jerry Martell's. I should go inside. He has been in Ennisburg for years and may know the best ways to find loved ones after the end of everything. The hunger is a consideration, too. Stopping to eat now before finding Carolus might seem like a selfish act but I won't do either one of us any good unless I do something to keep up my strength. Guilt wars with the need of an empty stomach. My mouth waters. Carolus will understand. I go inside. The place is dim and nearly empty. The old man with the enormous mustache is on the stage, playing something inconsequential. Jerry, who seems to be the only patron, is in a corner table waiting for me. He waves me over, asks me if I'm all right, urges me to sit down, and waits for me to tell him how it was. My words halting. I tell him it doesn't feel real anymore. He claps me on the back. He says he's proud of me. He says he wasn't sure about me in the beginning. He says he had me figured for the kind of person who wouldn't be able to handle it. But look at me now, refreshed, invigorated, ready to handle everything. He says I remind him of himself. He beams and expects me to take that as a compliment. I give him a weak nod. He punches me in the shoulder and says that it's going to be fun having me around from now on. A new person, he says to guide around the best of Ennisburg, who doesn't yet know all the sights, the sounds, the tastes, the joys, the adventures. There are parts of Ennisburg, both in and outside the capital, that even most of those who live here don't know. He says it's enough to fill lifetimes. He says that the other stuff, the nasty stuff, the stuff we endure as the price of admission, it's just a reason to cherish everything else. He says that the whole country is a treasure trove of experience for people willing to take the leap. And he says, I look like one of those people. And of course, he says, punching my arm again, there's Carolus, sweet, wanton Carolus, whom he has already seen taking her morning swim by the sea. Carolus, who will be so happy to see me again. He says I should remember what Carolus is like when she's delighted. He says that now I know I can handle it. I would have to be a fool to let her go. He chuckles, then says, Tell you what, stay right here. I'll go find her. I'm sure the two of you have a lot to talk about. And then he disappears, all before I have said anything at all. On stage, the man with the enormous mustache starts another song, playing this time not the misshapen guitar thing from two nights ago, but something else, a U-shaped device with two rows of strings forming a crisscross between ends and bass. Its music is clear and resonant, with a wobbly quality that only adds to its emotional impact. The song is a slow one, a relief to me, since the raucous energy of Ennisborg's nights might be a bit much for me right now. I nod at the old man, and he recognizes me. His grin broadens, and his eyes slit with amusement. There's no telling whether he has some special affection for me as a person, or just appreciates the arrival of any audience at all. Either way, his warmth is genuine. He is grateful to me for being there. But he does not stop playing just to greet me. The song continues— The lyrics, once again in a language unknown to me, are once again still easy to comprehend. Whatever the particulars, this song is impossible to mistake as anything but a tribute to being alive. when the song ends, I toss him a coin, and he tosses it back. Not insulted, just not interested. He is interested in the music for music's sake alone, in celebration, because celebration is the whole point. I think hard on the strange cycle of life in Ennisborg, dictated by law, respected as a philosophical principle, and rendered possible by all the technological genius the modern world can provide, this endless cycle which always follows nine days of sheer exuberance with one day of sheer hell on earth. It would be so much easier if exposure to that tenth day were not the price of admission. It would be so much better if we could be permitted to sail in on the day after and sail out on the night before. "'enjoying those nine days of sweet abandon without any obligation to endure the unmitigated savagery of the Tenth. "'The weekly exodus wouldn't be a tide of refugees. It would be a simple fact of life. "'If such a choice were possible, I would make it. "'Of course, I would also have to make Carolus come with me each time. "'For even if she was determined to remain behind and support her nation's principles, "'I could never feel at peace standing on the deck of some distant ship.' watching Ennisborg's beautiful shoreline erupt in smoke and fire, aware that I was safe, but knowing that she was somewhere in that no-man's land, being brutalized and killed. And there's no way she would ever come with me to such a weakly safe haven, when her land was a smoking ruin behind her. She would know the destruction temporary the same way I know it temporary, but she would regard her escape from the regular interval of terror an act of unforgivable treason against her home. It is as she said that time I almost lost her by proposing that she come back home with me, a suggestion I made not because home is such a great place, but because home would be easier. She said that leaving would be cowardice; she said that leaving would be betrayal; she said that leaving would be the end of her; and she said that the same went for any other attempt to circumvent the way things were here, including my own, which is why she'd despise me forever if I tried. The tenth day, she said, is the whole point of Ennisborg. It's the main reason the ships come and go only on the day after. Nobody, not the natives like Carolus and not the visitors like myself, is allowed their time in paradise unless we also pay the price. The question that faces everybody on that day after is the same question that faces me now, whether life in Ennisborg is worth it. I think of all the countries, my own included, that never know the magic Ennisborg enjoys nine days out of ten, that have become not societies but efficient machines, where life is all about keeping that machine in motion. Those nations know peace, and they know prosperity, but do they know life the way Ennisborg knows life, nine days out of every ten? I come from such a place, and I suffocated in such a place, maybe because I was too much a part of the machine to recognize the consolations available to me. Maybe because they weren't available to be found. Either way, I know that I've never been happy, not before I came here. Here I found my love of being alive, but only nine days out of ten. And is that tenth day really too much to endure anyway? I think about all the countries that know that tenth day, not at safe, predictable intervals, but for long stretches lasting months or years or centuries. I think about all the countries that have never known anything else. I think about all the terrorized generations who have lived and died and turned to bones with nothing but that tenth day to color their days and nights. For all those people, millions of them, Enesborg, with that tenth day always lurking in recent memory and always building in the near future, is still a paradise beyond comprehension. Bring all those people here and they'd find the choice easy, almost laughable they'd leap at the chance knowing that their lives would only be better most of the time it's only the comfortable the complacent the spoiled who would even find the question an issue for internal debate the rest would despise me for showing such reluctance to stay and they'd be right i've seen enough and experienced enough to know that they'd be right but i don't know if i have what it takes to be right with them i might prefer to be wrong and afraid and suffering their disdain at a safe distance in a place untouched by times like Ennisborg's tenth day. I remember a certain moment when we had been together for three days. Carolus led me to a gorge, a few hours from the capital, a place she called a secret, and which actually seemed to be, as there were no legions of camera-toting tourists climbing up and down the few safe routes to the sparkling river below. The way down was not a well-worn path carved by the weight of human feet, It was a series of compromises with what otherwise would have been a straight vertical drop, places where it became possible to slide down dirt grades or descend from one rock ledge to another. Much of the way down was overgrown, with plants so thick that only her unerring sense of direction kept us descending on the correct route, and not via a sudden fatal bone-shattering plunge from a height. She moved through it all with a grace unlike I had ever seen, and also with an urgency I could not understand but which was nevertheless intense enough to keep me from complaining through my hoarse breath and aching bones. Every once in a while she turned to smile and call me her adventurer. And every time she did, the special flavor she gave the word was enough to keep me going, determined to rush any place she wanted me to follow. The grade grew gentler the closer we came to the river at the gorge bottom. It became a mild grade, dim beneath thick forest canopy, surrounded on all sides by the rustling of a thousand leaves and the chittering of a thousand birds. Once the water itself grew audible, there was nothing but a wall of sound all around us. She picked up speed and began to run, tearing off her clothes as she went. I ran after her, gasping, almost breaking my neck a dozen times as I tripped over this root, that half-buried rock. By the time I emerged in daylight at the waterfront of multicolored polished stones, she was well ahead of me. I was hopping on one leg to remove my boots and pants, and she was already naked and up to her waist in mid-river her perfect skin shiny from wet and glowing from the sun. She had led us directly to a spot just below one of the grandest waterfalls I had ever seen with my own eyes. It was an unbroken wall of rushing silver, descending from a flat rock ledge some fifty meters above us. The grotto at its base was bowl-shaped and just wide enough to collect the upriver rapids in a pool of relative calm. The water was so cold that I emitted an involuntary yelp but Carolus just laughed at me, enjoying my reaction. I dove in, feeling the temperature shock in every pore, and then stood up, dripping, exuberant, wanting nothing in this moment but to be with her. She caught my wrist before I could touch her. No. I stopped, confused. No? Why no? Wasn't this what she wanted? In this perfect place she'd found for us? She released my arm and headed toward the wall of water splashing through the river as it grew deeper around her, swallowing first her hips, and then her breasts, and then her shoulders, finally requiring her to swim. Her urgency was almost frightening now. I thought of how easy it might be to drown here, for someone who allowed herself to get caught beneath that raging wall of water. And I said, hey, rushing after her, not enjoying the cold quite as much anymore. I don't know what fed that river, but it was numbing enough to be glacial runoff thoughts of hypothermia struck for the first time and i felt the first stab of actual fear just as she disappeared beneath the wall the moment i passed through with sheets of freezing water assaulting my head and shoulders was one of the loudest i'd ever known it was a roaring rumbling bubbling cacophony so intense that it drowned out all the other sounds that filled the place the birds the wind the softer bubbling of the water downstream they were wiped out eliminated by this one all-encompassing noise i almost turned around but I kept going right through the wall. On the other side I found air and a dark, dank place. Carolus had pulled herself onto a mossy ledge just above the waterline, set against a great stone wall. There she sat with her back to the wall, hugging her legs, her knees tucked tight beneath her chin. Her eyes were white circles reflecting the light passing through the water now behind me. I waded toward her, found an empty spot on the ledge beside her, and pulled myself up too. The stone, I found without much surprise, was like ice, not a place I wanted to stay for long. But I joined her in contemplating the daylight as it prismed through the portal of plummeting water. It seemed brilliant out there, a lot like another world seen through an enchanted gateway. It's beautiful, I said. She said nothing, so I turned to see if she was all right. She was still staring at the water. She was in shadow, and a trick of the light had shrouded most of her profile in darkness. "'reducing her outline to a dimly-lit crescent. "'The droplets balancing on the tip of her nose "'were like little glistening pearls. "'I saw, too, that she was trembling, "'though at the time I attributed that to the cold alone. "'She said, "'Listen.' "'I listened and only heard the sound of the waterfall, "'less deafening now that we'd passed some distance beyond it, "'and something else, her teeth chattering. "'She said, "'The silence.' It took me a second to realize that this was the miracle she'd brought me here to witness. The way the waterfall, in all its harmless fury, now insulated us from all the sounds we had been hearing all morning. It was as if none of what we'd heard out there, all the time it had taken us to hike to this place she knew so well, now existed at all. None of it was there. None of it could touch us. It seemed important to her. At that moment I could not understand why. I am in the little restaurant, thinking all this, when a soft voice calls my name. I look up, and of course it's Carolus, sweet, beautiful Carolus, who has found me in the place where we prefer to think we saw each other last. She is, of course, unmarked and unwounded. All the insults inflicted by the soldiers either healed or are wiped away like bad rumors. She looks exactly like she did the night before last, complete with fringed blouse and patchy dress and two curling strands of hair that meet in the center of her forehead. If there is any difference in her, it lies in what I now recognize was there all along. The storm clouds of memory roiling behind her piercing black eyes. She's not insane or hard, the way she could be after enduring what she's endured. Annisberg always wipes away all scars, physical and psychological both, but it does not wipe away the knowledge. And her smile, always so guileless in its radiance, now seems to hold a dark challenge. I can see that she has always held me and my naivete in the deepest possible contempt. She couldn't have felt any other way, in the presence of any man who had never known the tenth day. I was an infant by Ennisborg's standards, a man who could not understand her or the forces that shaped her. I must have seemed bland, dull, and in my own comfortable way, even retarded. I find to my surprise that I feel contempt as well. Part of me is indignant at her effrontery at looking down at me. After all, she has had other tourists, she has undertaken other projects with other men from other places, trying time and time again to make outsiders into natives of her perverse little theme park to savagery. What does she expect from me in the end? Who am I to her? If I leave, won't she just find another tourist to play with for ten days? And why should I stay, when I should just see her as an easy vacation tramp, always eager to go with the first man who comes off the boat? It's not hard to be repulsed by her. But that hate pales beside the awareness that in all my days only she has made me feel alive. And her own contempt, great as it is, seems drowned by her love, shining at me with such intensity that for a moment I almost forget the fresh secrets now filling the space between us. I stand and fall into her arms. We close our eyes and taste each other's tears. She whispers, It's all right, Robert. I understand. It's all right. I want you to stay, but won't hate you if you go. She's lying, of course. She will despise me even more if I go. She will know for certain that Ennisborg has taught me nothing, but her love will be just as sincere if I stay. It's the entire reason she seeks out tourists. She loathes our naivete, but it's also the one thing she can't provide for herself. Jerry Martell stands nearby, beaming and self-congratulatory. Dee has joined him. "'approving, cooing, maternal. "'Maybe they hope we'll pay attention to them again. "'Or maybe we're just a new flavor for them, "'a novelty for the expatriates living in Ennisburg. "'Either way, I ignore them and pull Carolus close, "'taking in the scent of her, the sheer absolute ideal of her, "'laughing and weeping and unable to figure out which is which. "'She makes sounds that could be either murmuring words "'that could be balms for my pain or laments for her own. "'She tells me again that it's going to be all right.' And i don't know whether she's telling the truth i don't even know whether she's all that sure herself i just know that if i take that trip home i will lose everything she gave me and be left with nothing but the gray dullness of my everyday life and if i stay deciding to pay the price of that tenth day in exchange for the illusion of eden will never be able to acknowledge the tenth day on the other days when everything seems to be all right We won't mention the time spent suffocating beneath rubble or spurting blood from severed limbs or choking out our lungs from poison gas. I will never know how many hells she's known and how many times she's cried out for merciful death. I'll never be able to ask if what I witnessed yesterday was typical, worse than average, or even an unusually good day, considering. She'll never ask about any of the horrors that happened to me. These are not things discussed during peacetime in Ennisborg. We won't even talk about them if I stay, and if we remain in love, and if we marry and have children, and if they grow up bright and beautiful and filled with wonder, and if every ten days we find ourselves obliged to watch them ground beneath tank treads, or worse. In Ennisborg such things are not the stuff of words. In Ennisborg a certain silence is just the price of being alive. And a small price it is, in light of how blessed those who live here have always been, Just about all Carolus can do, as the two of us begin to sway together in a sweet, slow dance, is continue to murmur reassurances. Just about all I can do is rest my head against her chest and close my eyes to the sound of her beating heart. Just about all we can do together is stay in this moment, putting off the next one as long as possible, and try not to remember the dogs, the hateful, snarling dogs, caged for now, but always thirsty." For a fresh taste of blood. The mere absence of war is not peace. President John F. Kennedy for J H
3: There you go. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. Let us know. Drop us an email, Starshipsover at gmail dot com or again big thank you to Adam Troy Castro and Mike Boris. Thank you so much guys. Last up, but by no means least, is Amy H. Sturge is with Looking Back in the Genre Fiction. Amy, tell us all about it.
0: Hello, Sophanauts. Thank you for joining me today for another look back into genre history. Today, I'd like to talk about some of the works that are considered proto-science fiction. Now, by proto-science fiction, I mean works that anticipated science fiction by their content, but predated what we think of as the beginning of the modern genre with the 1818 publication of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. There are quite a few works that don't really fit our conception of the modern science fiction story, but really do pave the way for that to develop. And so today I'd like to talk about some of those. So we're going to go back, way, way back, to talk about, first of all, two classic works that set the stage for science fiction. The first of these is The Republic, by a fellow you may recall named Plato. Plato was both a philosopher and a mathematician, and he founded the Academy in Athens, which was the very first institution of higher learning in the Western world. He was born around, oh, 428, 427 BCE. He was a devoted follower of Socrates and an influential writer of what are called Socratic dialogues. Over time, 35 different dialogues and 13 letters have been ascribed to him, although scholars aren't sure about a couple of those. But either way, he was a prolific writer and thinker and he remains one of the most influential minds of the classical world. He wrote The Republic in about 380 BCE, and the entire purpose was to discuss justice and think about whether the just man is the happier, or if the unjust man, in the end, finds greater happiness. Or, to put it in a different way, Do nice guys really finish first or last? In order to get at these ideas, he conducts a thought experiment, imagining a different society ruled by philosopher kings and guardians. Some scholars think that this is his ideal world. It's a sort of utopian work. Others think this work is more of a satire, because it describes a a harsh, unfree, rigid regime that is anything but ideal. If that's the case, then it certainly anticipates ironic satires like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Either way you read the work, as an earnest blueprint or a tongue-in-cheek satire, The Republic fits the bill as proto-science fiction. In the words of science fiction scholar Eric Rapkin, Plato, in the 5th century before this era often considered how the application of intellect can change the conditions of human life and how those changed conditions will affect people. Thus, he was a proto-science fiction writer. Another great classical voice of proto-science fiction was Lucian of Samosata, who was born around the year 125 in the Common Era. He was a Greek-speaking Syrian satirist. Say that three times fast. And he may well have been the first author to write about, making a voyage to the moon. He did this in two works. The first, icaromenippus tells the story of a philosopher who is intent on proving that the earth is in fact round and not flat. To do so, he takes a wing from a vulture and another wing from an eagle and with them flies all the way to the moon. His more substantive work is True Story, or True History, which was written sometime between the years 165 and 175. This story has it all. Outer space travel, alien life forms, interplanetary warfare, even creatures made from human technology. It's sort of a satire of Homer's Odyssey. It tells the story of a group of adventuring heroes who are sailing westward, they find all sorts of cool things, like an island that has a river of wine flowing through it. But as they go along their way, they are lifted up by a giant waterspout, and they end up on the moon, where they find themselves involved in a huge war between the king of the moon and the king of the sun. And the armies involved include cloud centaurs and stalk and mushroom men and weird dog-faced men fighting on winged acorns. Yes, I said winged acorns. They finally get back to Earth. They get trapped in a giant whale, and they find a whole bunch of people living inside the giant whale, and they proceed to fight them and beat them in war. They visit other fantastic places, such as an island of cheese and a sea of milk. Eventually, they discover a far-off, unknown continent and decide to explore it. The book ends with another device that would become well-known in the science fiction world, a cliffhanger ending that promised a sequel in the works. Unfortunately, that sequel either never was written or has been lost to us, but still true history or true story by Lucian, is a remarkable achievement in fantastic storytelling, even as a standalone work. There are other classical works as well that, if not proto-science fiction, are at least imaginative works that help set the stage for science fiction. For example, the only Latin novel that has survived in its entirety is the second century Metamorphoses, or the Golden Ass, by Lucius Sepulius. In this story, a man experiments with magic and, in the process, accidentally turns himself into an ass. He goes on a long journey and has lots of fantastic encounters and revelations. The novel contains a number of nested stories within stories, self-contained tales, and one of these is the now-famous story of Cupid and Psyche. Other early works of note include the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Odyssey, both of which are prototypical travel stories, and the Histories of Herodotus, who includes a number of fabled peoples and places in his works, not to mention the odd intervention of the supernatural. After the fall of Rome came several works we would consider today to be fantasy. Beowulf in the 8th century, the Song of the Nibelungs in the 12th century, the Song of Roland, the Arthurian Romances, and even the Thousand and One Nights, or the Arabian Nights. Scholar Paul K. Alkin dates the earliest science fiction, or proto-science fiction, to 1516, Sir Thomas More's Utopia. Sir Thomas More was an English lawyer and statesman and also a leading Renaissance humanist scholar. He was born in 1478, and he coined the term utopia from the Greek, meaning no place or possibly good place, as the name for an ideal society, in his case, this thought experiment that he played out about what would be the perfect socio-political legal system. In a way, Moore's Utopia is based on Plato's Republic. But you might think of it as the Republic 2.0, because it's a better place to be than the world Plato described. Like all works of science fiction, no matter how distant the setting or how futuristic the time period The work is really about the here and now of the author, and that's certainly the case for Sir Thomas More's Utopia. And so the author, for example, describes a kind of primitive communism. The society uses gold for chains of slaves and for chamber pots so that the populace develops a healthy dislike of the stuff rather than greed. And quite contrary to Moore's experience, no professional lawyers are needed because the law is made so simply in Utopia, every citizen can understand it and practice it. Utopia reflected some interesting social innovations such as easy divorce and euthanasia and tolerant religious life embracing sun worshipers and moon worshipers, planet-worshippers, ancestor-worshippers, and monotheists as well. And although women in utopia aren't exactly liberated by our standards, a few select women become priests. Like the Republic before it, utopia paved the way for thought experiments in science fiction and social criticism and commentary in science fiction. And the utopia and the anti-utopia, or dystopia, have become permanent fixtures in the science fiction world. Works like Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward and H.G. Wells' The New Utopia and a number of others fit within this tradition. After Utopia came Ludovico Ariosto's Renaissance poem Orlando Furioso, published in 1532. This is basically an epic treatment of the Roland story, but it's significant because one of the characters goes to the moon in the same chariot that, according to Jewish and Christian scripture, carried off the prophet Elijah. Now, the reason for going to the moon was to find lost wits, because according to this poem, the moon contains everything that has been lost on earth, from people's brains to cities and towns and people interesting idea. The last work of proto-science fiction I'll discuss today was written by an Italian philosopher and poet and Dominican monk named Tommaso Campanella. He was born in 1568, and he wrote his utopian work, The City of the Sun, in 1602, shortly after he had been imprisoned for heresy and sedition. You can imagine, after an experience like that, he was looking for a better world than the one he lived in. The work wasn't published for another 21 years. It owes a great deal to Plato's Republic and Sir Thomas More's Utopia. It describes a theocratic ideal society, and a great deal of Campanella's focus is on faith. But what's interesting is that he also emphasizes rationality science, and the general social conditions of humanity in the work. And thus, he also sets the stage for a number of the utopian and dystopian and social science science fiction that would follow. And just listen to this excerpt and see if you can't hear the sense of wonder that later infused science fiction. Oh, if you knew what our astrologers say of the coming age and of our age that has in it more history within a hundred years than all the world had in 4,000 years before, of the wonderful invention of printing and guns and the use of the magnet and how it all comes of Mercury, Mars, the moon, and the scorpion. And so, whether they were trying to go to the moon or create an ideal place on Earth we see these early proto-science fiction writers were pioneers of imaginative fiction. Long before the scientific revolution, they were asking what if and playing out thought experiments and setting the stage for science fiction authors of the future. The Republic by Plato, True History by Lucian, The Golden Ass by Lucius Apulius, Utopia by Sir Thomas More, and City of the Sun by Tommaso Campanella are all available for free at Project Gutenberg. The Republic by Plato and Utopia by Sir Thomas More are also available in audio form for free at LibriVox.org. I haven't by any means touched on all of the important proto-science fiction works, so I hope you will join me next time for more History of the Science Fiction Genre.
3: There you go. Big thank you to Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, thank you so much for that. Do look out for next month's article. And that is it. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Like I say, I'm rather proud of this. Show number 87, fantastic. Great story, great narration. Great stories all round. So there you go. That is show number 87, Put to Bed. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like this show, do consider, yes, do that time again, not that time soon, yes it is, do consider join up to the Oral Delights. No, it's not, man, why do I keep saying that? It is the sanatorium show, £2.50 a month, gets you the private show by my good self. Keeps this old bird, this old girl flying high, putting out stuff like that, That's this is what you've got to kind of think about. You know, it literally is is for, you know, everyone helping out. You know, all you guys helping out, donations and everything like that. It's how we can do this show. It's how we can bring it, like, week after week, how I can kind of get and just go ahead and get, like, all this fantastic work. Thank you so much. You know, do support the sofa. So that is it for Starship Sofa's Oral delights. I hope you've enjoyed it. I will see you next week, unless you come over to the Sofa Notes on this Friday, 16.30 UK time, where you can see my good self, Matthew Sanborn-Smith, Damon G. Walter and Jeremiah Talbot, Jeremy Talbot, editor of Escape Pod, chewing the crud of science fiction news. Until then, just like to say, goodnight from me. <coughs> survive this terrible ordeal?
1: Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Sourcing Sofa. <laughs> of that, a procedure in a shade. Shuttle set for launch. two opened in
0: three, two, one.